Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor. Um, I'm excited and I'm grateful that we can be here. Grateful that we have a space indoors that we can worship in. Um, and also grateful that you can join us online. I know it can be difficult to connect. Um, masks create this barrier. I was at a gathering of pastors and elders yesterday, and I literally saw people, and I was like, I have no idea who this person is because I couldn't recognize them because they had a mask because they had masks on. Um, and it's challenging. It's challenging to connect sometimes with masks, especially if you're online. Like it's difficult sometimes to just to feel connected, especially when you're trying to worship God through an online experience. And again, I just want you to know that your effort to connect to God, God will bless that effort and God will meet you. And he's got something to say to you who are tuned in online with us this morning. Um, We're in the Bible. (laughs) We're preaching through the book of Romans um, and we're doing this because God's word has the power to transform us. Uh, The more you know the Bible, the more you know God. The more you know God, the more you experience his power, his love. God, he is building a new world underneath the leadership of Jesus. As people follow Jesus, as people um, obey Jesus, they are part of God's building plan to renew the world. And so today we're looking at this new world. We're, We're in a series, we're actually finishing a series today called New Life in the New Year. And we're looking at Romans 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The verses are in your bulletin. Online, you're actually going to be a little better off today because all the slides will be coming at you um, online. Um, If you're here with us, you might want to have a Bible uh, with you. We're going to look at some different places, uh, especially in Romans. If you want to pull up your Bible app, we're going to go back and forth between Romans 8 and Romans 1. So... uh, But we're going to start here by reading Romans 8, verse 1. We're going to focus on verse 4 today with our message. And so this is Romans 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in God's family, if God is your father, he will never condemn you. His love is stronger than your sins. Okay, then verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What we saw in this verse is that Jesus both forgives you and he sets you free from sin and death. And then verse 3 we looked at last week, it says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God did what we couldn't do. Like sin has this power over us. It's in us. It's like we can't get away from it. And yet God, like God did what we couldn't do. God conquered sin. He came and he died and he condemned sin in the flesh. And so already you can see, I mean, what we're studying here today is a passage, it's dense. It's dense. It's it's challenging to understand, to unpack, to to, to fit all of this together. Like, what does this actually mean? What is this trying to say? And, And I just want to encourage you that in the denseness of these verses, in this compact paragraph, there is so much of the story of Jesus. Okay, and we've been seeing that over the weeks. Well, God, with all of this, in coming, in dying, in condemning sin, God had a purpose in all of this. There was an aim, a goal, and and the purpose of God is what we're going to look at today. 
Um, It's the title of this message, God's Purpose in Forgiveness. And the next verse, Romans 8, verse 4, shows us God's design. Okay, let's read verse 4. He says, in order that, that's the purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this this phrase, in order that, what this means is that God has a purpose in the gospel. God has a purpose in your life. You might not know this, you might not understand this, but God cares about you so much, and he has a purpose for your life. And this verse tells us what his purposes are. There's really two purposes And they're so encouraging. Two purposes in this verse that we're going to discover today. And so I want to do a quick shout out to our kids. Kids, and I'm thinking kids younger than my own who are here. So kids online, you're maybe sitting there on the couch with mom and dad. Maybe you're sitting in the room. Maybe you're coloring. Hey, I want you to pay attention really quickly. Um, When your parents discipline you, Right? When your parents discipline you, whether they spank you, whether they give you a timeout, whether they just are, whether they correct you verbally in the moment, there's a purpose in that. You might not have ever thought about this. Your parents are doing this for a reason. There's a purpose behind their discipline in all of its forms. And the purpose of their discipline is to deal with what you've done and to help you experience forgiveness and love. Like that's the purpose in godly parental discipline. It's to deal with what's happened and then to restore and help you experience forgiveness and love. And it's not only for parents, but God is our heavenly father. And God's purpose also are these two things, to deal with what we've done and then to help us experience forgiveness in love. And so the first half of verse 4, let's look at that. It says, in order that, we see the first purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so we're going to look at two purposes of God's forgiveness. Okay, two purposes today in this verse in forgiving us. The first purpose is this, that God in forgiveness, he wants to condemn our sin without condemning us. He wants to condemn our sin without condemning us. Now, this first part of the verse, of verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, this is interpreted in lots and lots of different ways. I've been reading this verse. I, I remember the first time somebody pointed this verse out to me. I was a freshman in college, um, and I'd been walking with Jesus for maybe two years, and I remember someone showing me this verse, and This person told me what this verse meant in a really encouraging way, but he was wrong. (laughs) There's lots of ways that scholars and people interpret this verse. And so um, there are people who think, a lot of people think, especially people that believe in something called Reformed theology, which is an emphasis on God's care for us and his covenantal relationship with us. Um, A lot of people think that this verse uh, means that Jesus not only gives us the blessing of forgiveness in his death, that's verse 3, but Jesus also then gives us the blessing of his perfect life in verse 4. And so this means that not only are we forgiven, but we're also accepted by God as though we have perfectly obeyed God's law. 
Like that's when God looks at us. He doesn't see us as sinful anymore because Jesus takes away our sins. But it's even better than that, that God looks at us and sees us as though we've obeyed his law perfectly because Jesus fulfilled his law. And in the gospel, his perfect obedience is given to us and God looks at us as though we have perfectly obeyed his law. And the idea here is that the righteous requirement of the law refers to obeying the law perfectly. So, that is theologically true. Like, God really does look at us that way. When he sees us in Christ, he sees us as though we're perfect. We stand before him blameless with great joy. That's Jude 24 and 25. (laughs) But, I don't believe that's actually what this verse is teaching. Okay? Like, I think the Bible teaches that, the gospel teaches that, but that's not what this verse is saying. So, Didn't mean to get you all excited, but you should be excited because that reality is amazing and wonderful, but it's not actually what this verse is teaching. This phrase, righteous requirement, in verse 4, right? The righteous requirement of the law. um, That phrase, righteous requirement, it's it's a single word in Greek, and it actually is used earlier in this letter, in Romans 1, verse 32. Okay, so I'm going to read you Romans 1, verses 28 to 32, and, um, and then I'm going to show you what Paul means by this, because he actually tells us what this verse means, what this phrase, what this word means. And so in Romans 1, 28 to 32, it says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and what Paul is describing in Romans 1, he's describing the, um, the downward spiral of societies that live apart from God. Okay. And so it says, and, see, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Whoa, how'd that get in there? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that's the same word as righteous requirement in Romans 8, 4. So though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what's important is that in verse 32, this righteous decree, again, it's the same word as righteous requirement in Romans 8 verse 4. And in chapter 1 verse 32, it's really clear that the righteous decree or the righteous requirement is that those who practice these things deserve to die. And so the righteous requirement of the law is death for sinners. That's what the righteous requirement of the law. And so this is speaking about the consequences that justice requires of our sin. And so the point here is that when we reject God, who is the source of life, we cut ourselves off from him. We turn away from him. And when we do that, we begin on a path that leads to death. Because if we cut ourselves off from God, we're cutting ourselves off from life. And so the just consequence of our sin, and even the natural consequence of our sin, is death. And so 
Paul is describing this problem early in, the, in, the, in this book in Romans 1, but then in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, he describes God's final solution to that problem. And the final solution is Jesus. And you're like, well, I know it's Jesus, because you're supposed to say Jesus is the answer to everything, right? But he actually describes how Jesus is the answer. He says that Jesus, in verses 3 and 4, he says Jesus came and Jesus died, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. So, because he died, when we follow him, our sins are paid for in his death. And so God's righteous requirement, which is to punish sin with death, Jesus took that for us so that God's justice is satisfied. So the righteous requirement of the law is that sin in the flesh must be condemned. So Jesus died in the flesh to fulfill that righteous requirement. And y'all, this is why there is no condemnation. It's because Jesus was condemned for us. And this isn't just like legal fiction. This isn't just uh, a story of someone who did this amazing thing for you. Like when General George Washington led the troops across the Delaware River, right? And there's that painting of him standing there looking triumphant as they cross over, right? It's not that this thing happened and all of a sudden now you get to live in a free country, although that's true. It's so much more personal than that. Like God tells you this so that you would know how deeply he loves you. So that you would know how personal his work on the cross was for you. It reminds me of in the Old Testament with the priesthood. There was a high priest and the high priest had incredibly special garments the high priest was given access to the presence of God in a way that nobody else was. And the high priest had these special garments that he put on in order to sort of equip him and make him able to walk into God's presence, able to go into God's presence. And he alone was allowed access to God in this special way. And in the book of Exodus, in chapter 28, we're just going to look at verses 29 and 30. And it's talking about um, one of the things that the, pre, the high priest would wear, he wore something called a, like a breast piece. Okay? And it was this thing that went over his shoulders and it hung on his chest. And it had these 12 stones on it. Okay? And in Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30, it says this, So Aaron, Aaron's the name of the high priest, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so, if you're anything like me, 
when you read the book of Exodus, like the beginning stuff's kind of interesting, right? You've got Moses, and then you've got like the Pharaoh, and then the plagues, and it's super interesting, right? And then the Red Sea crossing, and then they start complaining, and then, you know, and then Moses, they end up at Mount Sinai, and there's fire, and, there's, and the Ten Commandments come, and all this amazing stuff, right? And then you have the like second half of the book of Exodus that gets into how they're going to build the tabernacle, and it's tedious, lots of details, it's kind of like blueprints, so that's why it's so tedious, because like God wants to make sure that they know how to build it, and, he knows, and then they know all the details. Well, so in this place, <laughs> write this down and look this up, Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30, like in this place, in the midst of God describing the clothes that the priest should wear, he puts this in here, and he's saying, the high priest that can come into my presence, that can come into the fullness of my presence... I want him to make sure that he has the names of my people on his chest, over his heart. Friends, the New Testament says Jesus is our high priest. And when he went to the cross, he had our names on his chest. He had our names over his heart. Your name. Your name was on his heart as he went to the cross to die for sins. God's purpose in forgiveness is to condemn your sin without condemning you so that he can know you. So that you would know that nothing stands between you and him. This is why I'm a Christian. It's because God has shown us how much he loves us in what Jesus has done. And he did it not just for the world, but for you. Your name. Your name on his heart as he went before the Lord and experienced your condemnation. And one of my favorite passages that describes the reality of the assurance that this is designed to get us to have comes from Edward Fisher, who wrote a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Back in the 1600s, he wrote this. And I've read this before, but I'm going to read it again because it is so good. He says this, he says, Since you have believed, you are now wholly under the gospel. No one can say to you now, do this duty, avoid this sin, and if you don't, God will condemn you and damn you. No, no, no. You who are justified are now set free from the commanding and condemning power of the covenant of works. Therefore, even if you do transgress any of the Ten Commandments, you still don't transgress the covenant of works. There is no such covenant now between you and God. And therefore, if you ever hear a voice threatening hell and damnation to sinners and transgressors of God's law, even if they're from the Bible, yet do not think they are spoken to you. No, no, the apostle assures you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that condemning voice should come into your conscience and say, you have sinned, and therefore you owe divine justice, 
if that condemning voice comes into your mind and says, good works must be done and the commandments must be kept if you will obtain salvation, then you answer and say to that voice, I am already saved before you came. I have no need of your presence, for in Christ I have all things, and I need nothing more that is necessary to justification. He is my righteousness. He is my treasure. He is my work. I confess, O law, I confess, O voice, that I am neither godly nor righteous. But yet this I am sure of, that he is godly and he is righteous for me. And to tell you the truth, O law, I am now with him in the bride chamber where it makes no difference what I am or what I have done, but rather what Christ, my sweet husband, is has done and does for me. Friends, all of your sin has received the righteous requirement of the law in the death of Jesus. And now you are free. You are free. And you're free to be in relationship. Like Jesus did this as a personal commitment to you. Your name on his heart so that you would know he's committed to you. And this leads us to the second purpose that this passage brings us to. So first, God's purpose in forgiveness is to condemn our sin without condemning us. And the second purpose is that God wants to invite us to now live in his presence. God wants to invite us to live in his presence. This is the second half of Romans 8, verse 4. So he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and then here it is, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit here in this verse is the Holy Spirit. This is the very Spirit of God And what this is saying here is that when we believe in Jesus, when God forgives us and sets us free, we now walk, which is a metaphor for living. We live our lives. We walk in his presence. The gospel invites us to live in his presence. Sin is the animating power of the flesh. Romans 7 describes that. You can go back and read that if you want to. But when you're in Christ... The Holy Spirit is your new animating power. It's God's Spirit that animates you. Um, It's God's Spirit that gives you His power, that gives you His love, right? And if you're walking by the Spirit, then what this is saying is that sin is no longer your master. There was a time in your life when it felt like sin was in complete control. Like there was a time in my life where I was under the mastery and under the dominion of sin, but Jesus sets us free. We no longer have to live under sin's power. And so God's first purpose gives us assurance. His second purpose is an invitation now to live according to what God has done for you. His purpose is that we would become all that he wants us to be. God's purpose is that he gives us his spirit, his presence, his power, so that what comes out of us, the life that we live, looks like Jesus. 
We walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. When we sin, we're walking according to the flesh. When we love God and we love others, we're walking according to the Spirit. And so, Jesus did all of this work to separate us from the power and the presence of sin and to fill us with his presence. And our whole next series, like this last part of verse 4, sort of opens up the door to the next section of this letter, where Paul talks all about what it is to live in the Spirit versus the flesh. We're going to talk about that more as we begin a new series next week. But this week, I want you to take action, right? There's some things that I want you to do to help walk in this this week. The first thing that I want you to do um, is I want you to, I want, I'm, I'm going to say this, don't hold on to your sins. Okay? Don't hold on to your sins. It is possible for human beings to walk according to the flesh or to walk according to the Spirit. When we walk according to the flesh, we're living in sin. Sin is the animating power, like it's our selfishness, our desires, it's our need for approval, our need for control, you know, um, all of these things. Um, it's, it's gossiping, it's saying bad stuff about people behind their back, it's cutting corners at work, like all of that stuff is living according to the flesh. And I want to tell you, don't hold on to those sins. Jesus paid the price for your sins. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When you confess your sins to God and commit to follow Jesus, he takes your sin and he dies for them. And so if you're not a Christian, confess your sins to God and Jesus will take your guilt away. Let go of your sins because he wants to set you free. And then for you who are already Christians, Jesus died for Christians too. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think, oh, okay, well, now that I'm forgiven, now I've got to get my life right or he won't love me. That's not how it works. The death of Jesus also applies to the guilt that you feel. Sometimes you feel worse because you're like, well, I'm a Christian. I call myself a Christian. How can I live this way? And Jesus is like, look, I want to work with you. I want to help you. I want to help you grow, but you don't have to earn my love. I still love you. We're going to work on this together out of a relationship of love. So you need this when sin weighs you down. Um, don't stay away until you fix yourself. Come to Jesus and he'll set you free too. Every day we do things according to the flesh. Every day we do things according to the spirit. Don't hold on to your sins. Confess them and find freedom. Okay, the second thing I want you to do this week is I want you to turn your mornings into liturgy, okay? I want you to turn your mornings into liturgy <clears throat> because walking by the Spirit can be a nor like a part of your normal life, okay? Walking by the Spirit, um, it means living as though God is with you. It means living with the power and the presence of God. So you already have a morning routine, right? Everybody has a morning routine, I want you to turn your morning routine into a liturgy where you can rehearse that you now walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So I want you to make your current morning routine into something sacred. Okay, well, how do I do that, right? Huh? That sounds good. What do you mean? Well, here's a sample morning liturgy. 
going to give you five things that I think are part of what you're probably already doing. Five things. I want you to first wake up and know. I want you to know something when you wake up. Okay, when you wake up, I want you to know that God's spirit raises you from the dead. Okay, so when you wake up tomorrow morning, I want you to know that God's spirit raises you from the dead. God's spirit gives you new life. God's spirit, his power, causes you to live in a new way. And when you wake up, I want you to know that. So wake up and know. Second, I want you to shower and know. Okay, shower and know. Know that God's spirit cleanses you and invigorates you. Because I know some of you need a shower to wake up. So, um, But God's spirit cleanses you and God's spirit invigorates you. So as you're in the shower, as you are cleaning yourself off from whatever, you know, is on you, in, in preparing for the day, as you're waking up in the shower, I want you to know God's Spirit does this for me. God's Spirit does this in my heart and life. So wake up and know, shower and know, put on your clothes and know. I want you to know something while you're putting on your clothes that you also put on and walk in the Spirit. You put on the Spirit. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other parts of the Bible that teach us that. And so putting on the Spirit, in the same way that you put on clothes in the morning, put on God's presence. Remind yourself that you are filled with God's presence, that he is with you. Okay, so put on your clothes and know. Fourth, eat and drink and know. So whether you, just, whether you eat, whether you drink coffee, caffeine, whatever it is, eat and drink and know that you are filled. Because you're a child of God, you are filled with God's strength and energy. In the same way that caffeine gets you going, the Spirit of God gets you going. And so when you eat, when you drink, I want you to think, wait, in the same way that I'm taking in this food, I have God's Spirit in me to give me spiritual strength and energy. And then fifth, I want you to go to work and know. Go to work and know. Know that God's Spirit gives you mission, and that your mission is to serve and to earn and to share. That's what work is about. It's about serving, earning, and sharing. Okay, work is a chance to serve people, to earn, to provide, and then to share Jesus with others. It's to fill your workplace with as much of God's spirit and God's presence as you possibly can. And this is true even if your work focuses on the home and on your kids, right? God has the same mission for you. You serve people. Um, You earn the blessing and honor of God for the work that you do. And you share Jesus by filling your home with God's spirit as much as you can. And so... Wake up and know, shower and know, put on your clothes and know, eat, drink and know, go to work and know. I want you to turn your morning routine into an opportunity to recognize that the stuff that you're doing to prepare yourself for the day can be a metaphor for spiritually how to prepare yourself so that you can walk in the spirit, so that you can live with the fullness of God's presence. So don't hold on to your sins. 
Turn your mornings into liturgy. And then third, I want you to write out Romans 8, one verse at a time. I want you, in your personal time, take five minutes and write out one or two verses from this chapter. Write it out just as it's in your Bible. And then I want you to write out a version of you explaining this. Like, what does this mean for you? Like, how would you write this so that someone that you know, you could explain it to someone that you know? By doing that, you come even into closer contact with God's word, with his presence. And so I want you to do that um, and to keep doing that. Again, one or two verses at a time, whether you do it every day, whether you, you know, try to do it three or four times a week, the more that you do that, the more you'll spend time with God and you're gonna see things in the Bible and God's gonna speak directly to you and that will help you to be filled with his spirit as you take on the day. So God's purpose is that we would be sure of our forgiveness and that we would learn to walk in his presence. And what would your life look like if you had these two purposes coming true? What would your life look like if you were sure of your forgiveness and you were sure that you were living in God's presence? Let's pray together. Father, this is what we want. This is what our hearts desire. We want to live for you. We want to know your forgiving, like your grace. We're so thankful for what you've done for us in Jesus and that verses like this make it so clear that you have condemned our sin without condemning us. We pray, God, who knows what our homes could look like? Who knows what our workplaces would look like, what our friendships might look like if we could bring the assurance of your forgiveness, if we could bring your presence with us. Help us to do this so that San Diego would be renewed, so that places beyond San Diego would be renewed, so that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.